0: Hello everybody, welcome. We are back to another exciting call-in session. I uh, happen to be beaming in today from Paris. Thought I'd take a little weekend trip to France as the election is underway and take in some sights as to how democracy works out here. Um, I don't have... That many hugely incisive observations to make. Obviously, the uh, exit poll projection, which apparently is thought to be pretty much accurate, uh, shows that Macron has won with something like 58%. And I think probably what the media reckoning is going to be, and I'm really speaking mostly to the US and uh, UK and other English speaking media, because I just don't have as much of a f- intimate familiarity with French speaking media as I don't, unfortunately, speak the language. Um, but I think the preoccupation in English speaking media is going to be about the percentage of the vote received by Le Pen, which was, you know, around forty two, probably, at least according to the preliminary results, which, you know, is uh, <laughs> a lot given. How much of a fringe character she had been depicted as for a very long time. Now I know since 2017 they've tried to do a whole lot of image refurbishment on Le Pen and she sort of softened some of her positions and whatever tried to appear more, more mainstream. And you know I'm, I'm aware of the whole kind of dramatic history where she broke with her father and whatnot. But still, like the Le Pen family in France, as I understand it, was basically. Seen as so intolerable that um, when her father Jean Marie Le Pen ran, uh, received it was in the top two in the final round in two thousand two there was like a, a giant mass mobilization and he lost I think he only got something like fifteen percent um, and uh, Chirac uh, won by a totally unprecedented margin uh, I think I just. Was looking at this recently, but it was something like the largest margin of any French leader since uh, Napoleon, or something like crazy like that. So, anyway, for uh, Le Pen to turn in a relatively respectable performance is, is interesting. I'm, I'm sort of curious to see what the um, demographic breakdowns are, particularly by age, uh, because I had seen data which suggested that the antipathy for Le Pen was actually greatest amongst older people and that as you go down the age brackets there's um, more receptivity to her potentially which would kind of be an interesting you know, inversion of what the ordinary dynamic is there uh, again it's, it's preliminary I haven't seen the results yet so I'm not going to make that as a firm sort of extrapolation but um, anyway uh, I, I uh, decided to come to uh, Saint-Denis, which is in the north, it's like a northern suburb of Paris. It's one, heavily diverse. It's kind of amazing walking around and just seeing the <laughs> sheer um, multiplicity of different types of people uh, out and about. Um, kind of reminds me a bit of Jersey City, actually, although <laughs> you know, because Jersey City, where I'm from, is the most uh diverse city in the country if you look at in terms of like the number of different demographic groups represented Um, so san denis kind of like that although there's you know like uh, sort of obviously a more of a north african flavor and um touch when i went to chatting with people uh and i didn't speak to one voter um You know, admittedly, sometimes it's in in broken French or I find somebody who can speak a little bit of English or whatever. But nobody who I did manage to speak to, if they were voting for Macron, was doing so with any enthusiasm at all. In fact, they were really Uh, disliking of Macron, Macron, but they disliked Le Pen more. So they voted for Macron, although a lot of people, uh, a bunch of people I spoke to just didn't want to vote at all. And, uh, abstained. And, uh, based on my reading of the current data, it does seem like it's the highest abstention rate in France for a presidential election in 50 years, which is also significant. Um, and, uh, I'd also went and looked at, uh, I went to one of the uh, polling stations, uh, the vote where the vote was actually taking place in Saint Denis at the city hall. And, um, you go in and it almost seems like uh, antiquated, right? It almost seems like a relic because people are just it's, – it's all paper, right? There's no fancy-schmancy computerized systems where you have to touch a light-up board and then like make sure it goes through and then who knows where the memory card is going to go. No, you just <laughs> take a piece of paper with the names Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen into a booth – you decide which one you want to choose and you place that card into an envelope and then you stick it into a box. I, I took some photos and posted them on Twitter earlier today. If you're curious, um, but it's just sort of funny how that, that utter kind of blindingly obvious simplicity of a voting system is just nowhere near attainable for whatever reason in the U S where well, everything's gotta be like needlessly complicated and everything varies by jurisdiction and whatever. Uh, well, I mean, France is a fairly large country. Uh, and uh, this is how they do it. So and it seems to go relatively well. We have results in a matter of like an hour after the the polls close. I mean, obviously, not the full results yet. That'll come trickling in. But we have to, we know the winner, right? Um, although that's basically the exit poll. So maybe that's not quite due to the voting system. But you get my point. Uh, and the, so that's just uh, some uh, anecdotal observations from from France, If you're curious, actually, and this is a good way to transition, I noted that flying above the city hall in Saint-Denis, which, by the way, is also sort of like a more left-wing-leaning area, socialist-leaning, I guess, in terms of its electoral preferences, Melenchon, the uh, socialist candidate slash communist candidate, whatever he is exactly, he won by a landslide in the first round of the election, and the result is part of the and, uh, apathy toward... Macron here stems from that because Melanchthon did not quite endorse Macron. Actually, he declined. He pointedly declined to do so, although he was adamantly opposed to Le Pen. Um, who I don't know. Maybe if maybe if the right in France wishes to actually win an election at some point on a national scale, they should choose somebody other than the Le Pen family dynasty. Just a thought from a uh, from an outside observer. Um, uh, anyway, so but but the at the city hall where the voting is happening, there's a Ukrainian flag flying on the building, which you know obviously piques my interest somewhat. It's you have know, the French flag, the European Union flag, and the Ukraine flag flying in this, you know, on the city hall of this relatively down, you know, lower class area, right? It occurred to me that. You know, I don't know the full extent of the voting re- – of the regulations around whether electioneering is permitted at these voting places, right, in France. I'm actually going to look into that <laughs> soon. Um, but you know, let's say it's roughly similar to the US where you're not allowed to actively campaign within a certain distance or something of the polling site. It kind of shows you that the issue of Ukraine is partly so uh, – Intractable in the consensus that it's generated, because it's it's seen as almost transcending quote politics, right? Um, so of course, you know, this flag waving at the poll at the actual polling site wouldn't violate any theoretical regulations around prohibition of political campaigning, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's. I think that's a, that's a big component of why there is such uniformity around this. And if you listen to the, the debate that took place a few days ago between Le Pen and Macron, um, there wasn't a whole lot of disagreement between them really on Ukraine. Actually, Le Pen praised Macron for Macron's efforts at brokering some kind of last-minute diplomatic resolution with Putin and maintaining open channels of communication with Putin, and uh, they don't seem to have a whole lot of difference of opinion at all on the the actual policy. I mean, Le Pen actually also condemned the invasion. Um, Whatever difference difference they have on the subject of Russia was basically Macron accusing Le Pen of being beholden to Russia for this bank loan that she infamously took out in 2014 for the the Front National Party and um, kind of other... Ancillary issues that don't strictly relate to policy of the policy of France vis-a-vis the invasion of Ukraine, right? Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a – even though the kind of flippant media take would be that Le Pen is the candidate of Putin and if she wins, that's great news for Putin or now that Macron has won, that's a huge blow to Putin – at least in terms of what they articulated as, uh, about their positions on the Ukraine uh, situation, I didn't detect a whole lot of difference. Um, maybe Le Pen is slightly less inclined to, for example, send weapons to France to um, Ukraine than, than Macron, but it's really only like a really mild deviation. Um, which uh, brings me to my next topic. Uh, doesn't have a whole lot. To do with France, I just happen to be here right now. Um, And uh, this I published on Substack uh, yesterday, so if you want to look that up, um, I recommend reading it because it was a cathartic thing to write for me in a way. Um, I felt like I (laughs) unloaded on a certain individual who I actually hadn't really been that familiar with at all prior to maybe two or three days ago. And what happened two or three days ago is that I was made aware that uh, earlier this month, foreign policy, this journal, which is about largely foreign policy um, and which you know every serious student of foreign policy is definitely subscribed to and all the think tanks in D.C., you know, they had it delivered straight to their inbox and they – not in solemn approval at all it's very learned essays Um, they published an online article by this character Justin Ling in which I was randomly attacked as allegedly participating in a quote unquote Russian disinformation operation And the way in which this was done was sort of illustrative. I was sandwiched between uh, Viktor Orban, the president of Hungary, the prime minister, leader of Hungary, and Infowars. Um, They were my fellow compatriots in this Russian disinformation operation. Like we're all in it together. Uh, apparently, the, the basis uh, for this accusation that I'm just a cog in the Russian disinformation machine, it was that on April third, I put out a tweet, and you know, all these dis- these disinformation beat reporters like Justin Ling, they ha- they hold themselves out as really diligent about you know, tracking all the latest trends and quote-unquote disinformation on the internet. And when you actually drill down to how they define disinformation, it often seems to mean more or less information that offends their sensibilities in some way or that they disagree with or that offends them or that they wish to curtail and have the tech companies uh, stamp out. On their behalfs, so you know, there's not a whole lot of discernibly consistent principle underlying these this new breed of journalists who have taken on this phony beat, Um, but that's what was supposed uh, apparently the impetus for this article because Justin Ling is you know always very scrupulous about condemning and uh, monitoring disinformation from particularly Russia. Uh, it, it's unclear whether he thinks that other governments, such as the Canadian government, he's, he lives in Canada, or the U.S. government, or any of the NATO countries, whether they're capable of perpetrating disinformation or if it's sort of like an intrinsic feature of the Russian state somehow, that they're the only ones capable of committing offenses of disinformation that would rile the interest of Justin Ling. Um, but anyway, apparently, the, my grave offense was that on April third, all of a sudden, these Ukraine government accounts, which they had been doing since the beginning of the war, but you know there was a new kind of phase in what they were disseminating, and what they were disseminating oh, over the social over social media, particularly Twitter, where all the journalists are on. You know, and I'm not saying that to necessarily denigrate them. I'm on, I'm on it too quite a bit. I admit that. Um, but the uh, the Ukraine government officials, as well as their kind of allies in the semi-journalistic Ukraine media sphere that consists disproportionately of brand-new outlets that have been founded sometime in the past maybe year or two or definitely since 2014 that have backing from, like, the National Endowment for Democracy or USAID or these other kind of U.S. government-connected groups or you know, funded by the European Union, like the Kiev, Kiev Independent. Um. They, in concert with the Ukraine government, started flooding out these images of what they were calling genocide, right, from this town in the Kiev area, Buka, right? And this was prompting instantaneous calls from American journalists and from American politicians for the imposition of a no fly zone yet again. As well as just general demands to escalate the American military commitment in Ukraine, even if it was short of the no-fly zone option. And I noticed, and this had been happening consistently, but what was happening uh, at that time was that the, uh, the journalists were carrying on their routine and experts and pundits of just simply amplifying with, uncritically what – The Ukrainian government entities were putting out there. So, just sharing and posting and broadcasting these images and videos that were put out, published by Ukraine government accounts. Right? So, this is a warring party. This is a foreign government engaged in an active war effort, a component of which is information warfare. Right, we, there was just an article in CNN of all places a few days ago, where an anonymous official, anonymous U.S. official, was quoted cautioning that, of course, everything any Ukraine government official does, including Zelensky, is in service of an information operation. That's how they put it. Not this information, in the case of Ukraine, just an information operation, which you know it's propaganda, right? And propaganda it doesn't even necessarily connote something ill-intended that. Often is the connotation, but you know, it, it, intrinsically it doesn't mean that it's bad um, or malicious. It's just the attempts by a government or some other outlet uh, outfit to kind of distort reality in service of promoting their own interests, and that's what the Ukrainian government is doing in the course of the war. One of the interests it's trying to promote is to entice the U.S. in particular, but also other countries to send them more and more heavy arms and maybe even do a full-fledged intervention at some point. And what were they doing? Well, they were putting, blasting out this totally unverified, uncorroborated footage purporting to show genocide to bolster those demands. Now, if that's not the definition of war propaganda, I don't know what is, but what this Justin Link creature did was... Snip it out the, that one phrase, war propaganda, and claim that because I used that phrase in a tweet, that meant I was a war crime denier. And that I cast doubt upon the authenticity of the war crime, purported war crime photos. Now, I wasn't in a position to cast doubt on the authenticity of those photos because I wasn't there. I have no. I had no means of doing so. I was casting doubt upon the propriety or the journalistic validity of simply repeating and disseminating anything that Ukraine government officials put out into the public domain without any skepticism at all. I was criticizing that practice because MSNBC was doing it. CBS was doing it. Everybody and their mother on Twitter was doing it. And they're essentially abetting a propaganda operation, a war propaganda operation. That's just what it is. Um, but according to Ling, that meant I was in league with, you know, Orban and Info Wars and all these cranks and kooks. And I was kind of just nihilistically denying war crimes. So I found out that this article was out a couple days ago. Um... And I actually contacted Justin Link, gave him an opportunity to respond to me, which he didn't do on my end. I, had, I got no opportunity to provide a reply or any kind of comment at all ahead of publication of this article, which used to be kind of a standard journalistic convention, especially if you're making a weighty allegation against someone that could be reputation damaging. Um, but that wasn't done. In this instance, which you know, okay, uh, I'm really not in a position where I need to worry about my reputation being damaged amongst like some of the worst people on earth. I mean, I don't really I don't care at all with Justin Ling, who's just a I don't even know how to describe him. What he thinks or what these other kind of mindless drones think in the media industry. Um, so that's not really much of a concern for me, but it would be for others. Which is why it's it used to be just very much standard to provide an opportunity to, to reply, right? Well, it wasn't done here. And, um, and Justin Ling never got back to me. So uh, he's willing to fling his accusations of war crime denial in a public forum on, an, on a, on a, in a you know, somewhat respectable publication. Uh, but then he won't even back up his contentions. And uh, even today, he's sort of tweeting obliquely about it without responding. Um, So I, I, in the article, again, I would would recommend looking at, um, I go into his background a bit. Um, I've ever, even since I published the article, I've got more people sending me stuff about him that I hadn't known. Because again, I just wasn't familiar with the guy. Um, And uh, apparently he's frequently in lockstep with the Canadian security agencies, meaning the Canadian security state and whatever. And that was definitely evidenced by the one piece of his journalistic output that I did review, which is his segment that he did earlier this month for the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, you know, Public TV in Canada, that uh, purported to show that Ling had exposed the origins of the Ukraine biolab story as being a conspiracy theory that um, started with one random Twitter account that he as a disinformation expert and an intrepid investigative reporter, you know, unearthed. Uh, And of course, the tweet that he claims spawned the whole, quote-unquote, conspiracy theory around the biolabs Uh, Was a QAnon account. So that means anybody who has any, raises any questions about that story or wants to look into it further, they're just these, again, right wing disinformation kooks who are are doing the bidding of the Kremlin. I mean, that's always basically what it comes down to for these freaks. And so I watched this segment that Justin Ling did for the CBC. And it's just, it's a, first of all, it has such an annoying aesthetic where they're trying to do this kind of recycled vice vibe. And Ling previously worked at Vice in Canada. Um, So it shows him, like, you know, doing these cool travels around Virginia (laughs) where he's, you know, driving in his car and he's talking in. It's like a first-person camera on him driving in the car for some reason as if that really adds anything to the story at all. Um, and you know why he, the reason he's in Virginia is because he's visiting the Pentagon or he's visiting wherever this particular Department of Defense depart, uh, entity is located. And he does a, just a friendly on-camera interview with the head of this Pentagon department that has jurisdiction over the quote-unquote biolabs program in Ukraine – and basically the official just denies that there's anything untoward about it and Ling accepts it. That's the full extent of his investigative journalism. I mean, he actually trumpets himself as a quote-unquote freelance investigative journalist and maybe he's done freelance investigative journalism. I don't know. But it just seems like an odd characterization for someone who would just stand before a Pentagon official and just mindlessly imbibe whatever they say and then that's all that's needed to rebut this supposed conspiracy theory. Um, and you know, so that's that's Justin Link, but the the real kicker, the real kicker, is that you when know, when I was alleged by him in foreign policy to be this sinister purveyor of disinformation, I thought to myself, you know what, this might be a good opportunity to just scroll through Twitter, I meaning his account, because that's what he does, and see if anything pops up that might suggests certain things about his uh, journalistic predilections. And wouldn't you know it, but on uh, many, many occasions, what has Justin Ling done? That's right. He's mindlessly propagated the unverified propaganda materials of one of the warring parties, not Russia, the other one, which I guess it's okay to do because they've been invested with so much moral valor and the entire media and Western "quote unquote" establishment is deeply invested in their military triumph, so it's okay for Justin Ling to just mindlessly propagate photos posted by Zelensky that he hasn't confirmed anything. The, the, the first thing about, um, or you know, to 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 retweet calls from like a government advisor in Ukraine demanding. More weapons. And that's not disinformation, even though CNN has quoted a Ukraine government, a US official saying that it's, it's an information warfare tactic. Um, can't even imagine Justin Ling acknowledging that he's complicit in that, because it just wouldn't occur to him. And um, the cherry on top is that Justin Ling at one point said, look, the Canadian government, his government, needs to do more information warfare needs to do more intense propaganda tactics to counter Russia. So he's actually a huge fan, Justin Ling, of quote-unquote disinformation when it's in service of his own political objectives. So that's what I learned about Justin Ling. And um, in a way, I guess I'm glad that he was brought to my attention because it's always good to develop greater insight into who actually has power and influence in the media industry that might have not been on my radar but once I learn of them it somehow brings my opinion of the establishment media in the quote west even lower into the ditch uh, where it already was located but now like it just keeps burrowing deeper and deeper into the ditch with every subsequent revelation um, all right, so that's basically what I have to say, my little monologue portion. Thank you for uh, bearing with me on that. And now we'll go to a couple of callers. So let's go to uh, Sal. Hello, Sal.
1: Hey, how are you, Michael? So I, I have uh, two uh, uh, different things. One is relating to your first part on, on France. Uh, you know, from the country of Simon de Beauvoir, the famous author of The Second Sex, Uh, uh, one of the leading uh, feminist uh, uh, philosophers and theorists uh, talking about how institutional uh, sexism was in France. I couldn't come across one single article uh, covering the whole electoral landscape, at least in any major publication, on whether there's still institutional sexism in France and may they be voting for Macron because he's a man and Marine Le Pen is a woman. Uh, So I didn't see that. Uh, Second thing, uh, regarding them smearing you and not uh, letting you at least uh, comment on it before they went to publication, it seems that uh, these tactics have become quite mainstream, and uh, uh, that's why they want to limit... The the issue with freedom of speech historically was it didn't matter because you didn't have freedom of reach, but now that you have Twitter, uh, you can broadcast to the world all the smear campaigns that they're doing against you they want to basically uh, have you banned from Twitter as well. And I think that's the, the real crux of the matter is the easiest way to get rid of freedom of speech and you defending yourself is if they can muzzle you, have you banned, uh, censored from all these platforms because they can write it in foreign policy or New York Times. I mean, there's the, the book, The, the Great Lady Winked, documenting uh, numerous egregious examples where the New York Times deliberately lied. But that was like in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Uh, you can go back to like Operation Mockingbird. Uh, you can go, it's all very well documented. But now uh, you as a single individual journalist, uh, you can retort to what they're claiming, accusing you of. And I think that's the bigger story. So uh, the, the, for example, there's a new hate speech tracker that's funded by the German government uh, of all governments. And basically, they're saying all these people who are anti-censorship are actually hate speech advocates, uh, including people like Naval, uh, Mark Andreassen, Paul Graham. People have actually pretty much nothing to do with uh, politics uh, uh, when it comes to, say, international uh, politics or the Russia-Ukraine issue. uh, And they mainly tweet on other matters, but they're always been against censorship. And now they're just advocates of hate speech, according to this tracker. And I think that's a really big story, the Travis uh, uh, Brown story, the hate speech tracker, that it's funded by governments.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, Thanks for that. You know, uh, it's interesting. Now that you mention it, you know, I sort of qualified what I said in both the Substack article's conclusion and just now. By saying that they can't really do much hit damage to me, meaning these foreign policy editors or Ling or whoever else is on this disinformation beat and demanding censorship because you know I'm sort of anomalous within the media industry and then I have my own independent following. And it's not like I'm begging any of these established outlets to provide me with basic sustenance, right? Um, so I don't need to kowtow to them as much as other journalists do. That being said, when you just made that point, it did occur to me that in theory, what could be done if it's been codified in a publication as quote-unquote prestigious as foreign policy that I'm a participant in a Russian disinformation operation, that could you know, th- theoretically violate the terms of service of an, a, a, um, a platform like Twitter. And maybe that could be cited as justification for kicking me off at some point, which actually well, would, which actually would be a harm to me in the sense that I use Twitter as a, you know, part of my job. So you know that, well, that that's where they actually could do some damage if they wanted to take it to its fullest extent.
1: They deplatformed multiple people from multiple platforms, anywhere from YouTube to uh, Twitter, on multiple different ruses, and everything they were accused of later on turned out to be accepted wisdom. Uh, But at the time, those were the excuses that they used to get rid of him.
0: Yeah, and then on your first point about uh, the uh, feminine aspect of Marine Le Pen, you know, it's funny, I haven't seen a whole lot of attention made to that at all. I don't see her history-making potential touted very much, Um, which, you know, in a way is almost like a boring point to make at this point because, uh, of course... All those identity-related plaudits are contingent on whether the person with the right identity also has the right political views. I mean I don't think that's a novel insight to make at this point. Um, But it's even more outsized with Marine Le Pen because the only thing that she's ever described that is not a woman or a trailblazer or whatever. It's that she's, quote, far right. I'm sure she does have some far right views, although they seem to have softened somewhat. I I don't – get the impression that she's she's a a a fire-breathing...
1: There was the debate between uh, Macron's interior minister where he, uh, by most measures, was uh, even more far-right and extreme than she was.
0: Yeah, I think it's just lazy to slap that label on on her. And then the idea is that you're going to scare people who don't have a whole lot of familiarity... With the intricacies of her platform or, or worldview, and to think that it would just be this giant calamity where she could be elected, and so forth. The only, therefore, the only option is to have Macron return to power. I talked to a bunch of, you know, and th- I'm not, I'm not defending Le Pen. I, do, I think she, pro- she does have some odious views, and her family has a lot of back baggage, and it's perfectly understandable for people to recoil at that. Um, still, though, that doesn't really excuse this kind of reflexive. Laziness and on, on her being a uh, uh, a woman, uh, yeah. I Just I find it funny that that gets so little attention at all, um, and it's not like anybody would give her any kind of credit whatsoever for having accomplished something of a historic magnitude. Um, yeah, it's just that she's this. She she's the far right boogeyman and that's all that that's the sum total of the analysis that people par- apparently have of of her um so yeah all right uh thanks sal uh gonna go to eric hello eric can you hear me yeah i can
2: all right how are you great great day beautiful day spring and spring uh i thought just to make things simple i would just maybe go over some of these comments i left but uh You know, I think there's something really dangerous about the underlying authoritarian um, idea that, you know, that the reason we lose wars is because the information environment at home has not been controlled properly. So, well, Eric, can I just do real quick because
0: I wanted to make a – before I forget, I wanted to make a point also uh, about – Oh, sure. Your show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just uh, um, a point had occurred to me that I forgot and I was going to make to Sal in relation to Marine Le Pen and her being a woman and such. One thought that has occurred to me and I'm not – I am not ai do not have anywhere near of, of, as much of a comprehensive knowledge of, of France and its politics as I would need to to make any kind of statement with certainty about this. Um, but it does strike me that a right-wing candidate probably could do better if they were male than female because there's something about like the, the right-wing – Nature, and I'm generalizing here, that seems like it's more in line with uh, like a male standard bearer. But the, obviously the male standard bearer would have to be, you know, sa- you know, quote unquote savvy and have some political skill. So I, I do – part of me does wonder if Le Pen being a woman maybe dimin- uh, lowers the ceiling that she has in – French politics, whereas maybe if she was a di- uh, another gender, she could have won. So, in a uh, in an ironic way, maybe she was held down by her gender, and she deserves to be defended on that ground, just like Hillary Clinton claimed she was held down on gender related grounds in two thousand sixteen. Anyway, that's just a. But I am just spitballing. I am not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, take that to the bank as any kind of all-encompassing theory. It's just a a thought I had. Sorry, uh, sorry, uh, Eric, go ahead.
2: Oh, sure. And I guess my thought, you know, uh, Madonna, when she performed and she put uh, a swastika on Marine Le Pen's face in one of her performances, you know, as a political statement, but then she walked it back and she apologized to Marine Le Pen and she met with her and I was like kind of wishing she hadn't done that because it was a little more radical. But other than that, I'm not too big of an opinion on her. I guess I largely thought that, yeah, probably she's worse than Macron. But um, there were people who were saying, like, well, if she wins, and then she can negotiate a peace with Russia. But I think that's just wish casting at, uh, at that point. But anyways, yeah, so the point I was making is that this, this this idea of information warfare, it's its not that it's being used against Russia. It's being used against us. It's about us not being able to see Russia today or us not being able to, you know, uh, being uh, silenced or whatever or being accused of uh, being part of the propaganda campaign it's all very it's all very sick and it, it just it is another way of saying there's a fifth column or there's it's going to be a stabbed in the back well the reason ukraine lost was because people at home were unwilling to you know uh, stomach the idea of what needed to be done and we have to make sure not to listen to those people the next time we have a conflict you know which is inevitable obviously so i think that's something very authoritarian about that outlook and it doesn't also um it, and it's not coincidental that somebody with that outlook would also think that it's appropriate to like you know, write a piece about somebody and then just not even allow them to have their comment. I mean, that's uh, just authoritarian thinking. And you know what, authoritarian thinking, it's not even, it's not good, it's not rational, it's not reasonable, so it gets you these bad outcomes. But, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but uh, I think, uh, you know, basically that guy's a coward, and you know what, you know, I think he thinks you're a troll, so he can be a troll back, and it's like, first of all, you're not a troll, you're a gadfly. That's how I think of you. Very useful. Uh, But, uh, you know... I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) That's more of an endearing way of putting it.
2: Sure, sure, and I, might, I you know I think of myself that way too, but um you know and, and uh, um yeah, so i'm just going through some of these comments, but you know in any case we're treating the everything the Ukrainian government now is basically like the steel dossier, which you know that's one of the ways remember that's one where when they really lowered their standards as to what they could what should be reporting. well it's worse
0: than the steel dossier, i mean yeah, it's the same kind of evidentiary standards um, yes. that are in place, but at least. Trump supporters push back against that because they thought that it was probably wrong and they thought that it was a way of slamming Trump, which was generally a correct supposition on their part. But it's not like there's really a sizable contingent of of the American political scene that's regularly calling it to question the veracity of these Ukrainian government claims. I mean, you have a handful of people online who maybe are, you know, some on the left, some on the right, I guess, but it's nowhere near as robust. Of a contingent, as it would have been with the steel dossier so any anyway, which is all to say that the um conformity is actually even more pervasive here than it would have been in relation to you know those early stages of Russiagate.
2: Yeah, who, who would have thought that uh, mass surveillance and everybody uh, sharing every aspect of their lives would lead to more conformity,
0: huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I thought I thought the whole promise of the Internet was that it was opening everything up and you could find anyone who shared your hobbies and you could mm-hmm. broaden your horizons. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who do... I mean, I'm not going to get into a whole treatise on the Internet philosophy or something, but, you know, a lot of people do use it in a way that does broaden their horizons, right? But, you know, in the main, I think it's probably... The opposite. I think Twitter, in particular, at least if you're talking about the media and kind of this satellite uh, groups around the media, like the think tank world and these kind of freelance pundits and whomever else. I mean, Twitter is the greatest engine for consensus that's ever been (laughs) invented in human history, Um, because it means that you know if if you ever deviate from consensus, you know about it instantly. And it's algorithmically wired to uh, punish you for your infractions against the consensus. So it's like a real-time consensus.
2: Yeah, the consensus uh, you the, know, it, protector. It hides the elephants in the room. Like, for example, like with Twitter, and you know, coming under control with Elon Musk, people didn't even seem to want to even approach the idea that well, one of the things he might do is bring Trump back. I think. Uh, did you see a lot of people trying to talk about that issue? Because that seemed to be something that that was something. No, don't even mention that.
0: Um, yeah, I didn't see that come up as, that much. I mean, maybe a couple people might have alluded to it, but it seemed more like that they thought that I don't know. Like actually, what the grievance is fun- ultimately against what Elon Musk would supposedly do. I guess the idea is that he would undo some of the quote unquote content moderation policies that previously had been put into place as a result of pressure from journalists and activists and such to uh, stamp out the some of the right-wing elements on Twitter. And if Elon Musk undoes that, then those right-wing elements maybe would gain more prominence. Um, that seems to me like the, the basic summation of what has made people so aghast about the prospect of him taking over Twitter – um, like that they're not, he's not going to immediately capitulate to every one of their censorship demands. It didn't seem to be as much about Trump in particular, although I'm not, I'm sure that would also cause a giant, well, there's the nebulous
2: concept of online harm, you know? And I was thinking about like with Taylor and people, it's like, it's one thing if you're getting serious, threats to your safety, but like if, and, you know, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, nobody should make you feel inferior without your consent. So, uh, it's, it's, it's uh some of these premises of harm that are just now nebulous. And something really harmful was happening on Twitter um, and it's not even necessarily well it was political because um, the guy who self immolated for climate change, um, that people are tweeting he's a hero. He it was like an act of compassion. And it's like, hello, are you talking about real world harm? That's spreading wait, wait suicide what, 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 what contagion. what happened there? I've
0: been uh, I've been abroad so I missed that.
2: Oh, um in D C in front of the Supreme Court uh, yesterday they were having climate protests, you know um, I think it was like, for example um, sunrise movement, things like that, and then a, a man set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court and eventually died of his injuries. You know, they, he was.
0: Oh, really? Oh, oh no, stuff. I didn't hear about that. I didn't realize the yeah. guy died. Who was he? And was it just? Uh, he was an older gentleman Uh,
2: I think he was an activist but I don't know too much more about his background other than I mean the way that it's being reported on I think is extremely irresponsible especially if you actually care about things like harm and not just in the sense of trying to support a war effort or things like that but like if you actually had a you know all content moderation is going to be a line drawing issue everything in life is a line drawing issue if I learned anything in law school like that was the one thing I learned is that you're going to have to draw the line somewhere right but um In terms of like, well, should people be able to just go ahead and tweet like, yes, this was a brave act. It wasn't, people were saying it wasn't suicide. It was an act of compassion. And it's like, this is, you know, this is the truth, quote unquote, that needs to be upheld so that we we can't actually talk about truth, like literal truth. And, you know, the word literal doesn't mean anything anymore. So, but yeah, uh, it was suicide. And, you know, don't do that. Um, It's bad. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, I mean, online violence is one of the most unintelligible concepts that's been developed in the <laughs> recent years, but it's taken very seriously by the tech companies, obviously, and these NGOs which are always putting out reports on the scourge of online violence and how it's particularly harmful to women and POC and all this. And you know, it's one of the uh, kind of tools in their arsenal to, to demand greater and greater censorship of the Internet. And so, uh, you know, if you look at the, how Twitter defines its rules, for example, on violence, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something to the effect of, you know, c- uh, direct calls for incitement of violence are prohibited and they've actually broadened the standards somewhat recently to kind of include more potential speech in this prohibited category. Um, but then, you know, a couple weeks ago, this guy appears on Twitter with a brand new account. I think that he started in February. And he's an American fighting in Ukraine. And he's allowed to solicit financial contributions over Twitter directly to his PayPal and Venmo to be used for basically a weapons trafficking ring, arms trafficking, uh, so he can purchase supplies, armaments to wage war. And that's fine with Twitter. That's not violence. Um, and Or Malcolm Nance, this kind of psycho who uh, last weekend melodramatically announced that he's taking up arms in Ukraine and was leaving his comfy MSNBC gig to uh, immediately start <laughs> waging war. I mean you know, he's allowed to post these like menacing selfies with his assault rifle, you know, prominently displayed and talk about how he's like engaging in literal warfare and this – it doesn't – run up against any potential Twitter prohibition. So yeah, it's always contingent. And the line is, as you put it, is always drawn to insulate whatever the kind of consensus causes from any kind of any scrutiny that would result in the the ejection of any of the guardians of consensus from these platforms.
2: Um, yeah, like when they say proven false Russian disinformation, it's like, I'm sorry, it is impossible to prove it like a day after it happened without an independent investigation. So it's not just that I think it isn't proven, I think it's impossible to prove. But like, that makes me a skeptic. That's good. I mean, and, but we're, we're, we're demonizing, uh, uh, you know, skeptics in our society, um, just generally. And that just has a lot of bad knock on effects of just how people live their lives. But I don't know, that's the, my sociological take. But Definitely, um, definitely. Like, 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 for example, um, also another point um, if you ever want to think about this point, I don't know if you've ever mentioned it, but the idea that, for example, even just violent imagery on Twitter, because um Well, you know, gore, gore, because there's people on, you know, there's people on the internet who go and they love to look up gore, they love to share this gore footage, and there's, you know, it's a good reason why it shouldn't be on, like, necessarily Twitter or Reddit or just on the front pages, but then, but then actually, I do often see, like, on Reddit, like, if, you know, if you could take the same type of gory outcome and say that it happened to a Russian or it happened to a uh uh ukrainian and they're very tricky about how they're gonna do that but i feel like uh, you know a lot of that combat footage i don't know if it's a younger zoomer thing but like telegram and things like that the ways that they get spread on that you know it's gonna it's another elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about but um uh you know this is like war is hell and i mean people are i think are very affected by this because of course i don't think i think we underestimate just how new this technology is on the human brain even the internet and all that but yeah I mean you well just I agree with that I mean I, think
0: we, just... I, I, I mean one thing that's occurred to me as I've found myself scrolling through some of this imagery, I have to admit, mostly on telegram, is, yeah, I think we are underestimating the novelty of how pretty much everything in a war now can be instantaneously filmed and published. Um, you know, the technology's been around for what ten years, something like that at most. Uh, it's only in the past like five years, or even less, that the, the cameras on smartphones have gotten like really good to the point that the camera that I have in my current iPhone is probably better than the DSLR camera. Yeah, I, have, I, I in, remember like, 2009.
2: when seven when seven, seven happened in Britain and they had cell phone video of from the inside the bomb phone. Yeah, it's wow. like filming wow. with a
3: potato. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So it it is really new and um. Whatever effects that has on just how we kind of perceive this, perceive warfare and create narratives based on the symmetry. I don't know. It's going to take a lot to, quote, unpack, to use the favorite sociological uh, (laughs) cliche.
2: Unpack our backpack and our (laughs) our baggage. I come with a lot of baggage, right? Um, (laughs) Check that baggage in. But um but yeah, you know, it's weird because it, the footage it makes things simultaneously more real but then sometimes also more fake seeming. And there's also the this o-
0: and then there's also this phenomenon of osint people which, you know, they claim to <laughs> which meaning open source technology and this is supposed to be this burgeoning field of journalistic inquiry and yet it's dominated by the f- most freakish people. Who video, you know, video gamers, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know they they claim to have some specialized knowledge of how to go about assembling OSINT information or in- intel, and you know, but it's it, it's it's in- incredibly trivially easy to just fashion whatever narrative you want about you know based on this information. So, like that's a new phenomenon as well, and it's just very much changing the terrain of what. A war is, um, and you know, you mentioned that when, when you first started speaking, how you know the these kind of disinformation tactics are being used on "unquote" on, us, and that's because, yeah, I mean, the, the reason why so much so many resources are being poured into this "quote" information warfare campaign is because it is pretty decisive and shaping beliefs around the war, and it's been incredibly effective in furthering the pro-Ukraine a cause and pressuring governments into being more and more assertive in the amount of uh, the amount and uh grade of weaponry that they're willing to deploy into the war zone um I, I you know people tend to sometimes be a nerd to the influence of social media um but i think it's because you know you have that refrain on twitter isn't real life or whatever well maybe it's not but that's not really what's being asserted about it <laughs> what's being asserted about it it does it does drive a huge amount of kind of current narrative fixations and that it just has a, it has a lot of power in that respect in, in all kinds of domains
2: well you get people revealing yeah. their immaturity like that jason stanley guy and it's like well maybe it's good for us that we can see that now that he's tweeting like a teenage you know uh, but in any case so i don't want to take up too much more of your time yep. but keep it up yeah, keep right, tweeting. Yeah. He's really bad, you. <laughs> okay,
4: thanks, Eric.
0: Uh, let's go to uh, Andrew. Hello, Andrew.
4: Hello, Michael. Can you hear me? Hi. Yep. Great. Uh, so I just want to start by talking about Malcolm Nance really quick because he's such a goofball. Um, he, I've seen many. One that- of the most long
0: one of the most long time psychos
4: that's been on my <laughs> radar. He's uh, really I first had Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't have his magazine seated properly in the rifle Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. Bulk carrier group. So this guy, the thing that gets me is that he's supposed to be this like spec ops warrior intel man that knows how to kill terrorists and things. But then he stages photos, which obviously for a photo op that he can't even stage properly. It's just so funny. And then there's this video of and also he's apparently he's apparently
0: in Lviv right where there's no right. urban warfare happening. So why is he in full fatigues?
4: <laughs> well, he's hiding. He's hiding from the Russians. Um, but the the other video where these cruise missiles are coming in, it's not. It's you know it's like black comedy because this is obviously terrible. But he's he's so ridiculous that he's like he gets up out of his seat and he starts talking about how they're fired in threes, and he keeps saying this for like another minute. And after hearing the third one, it cuts to the producer yelling four, four, and the fourth one hits. And it's just like they have this expert on who's just constantly proving how he's not an expert. It's it's hilarious. Um, anyway.
0: Well, the, fir- the first time I really became aware of him is that when he got tricked by a troll in 2016. I mean, it's a long story. But basically, when the WikiLeaks publications first came out, I think I might have if I spoke about this on call already forgive me because I know I've I've mentioned it before after he made his dramatic announcement just to give context about how I've been, been familiar with him. Um, in 2016 he announced or uh, sorry in 2016 when WikiLeaks published that tranche of emails from John Podesta's Gmail account a pro Hillary Clinton troll doctored a fake screenshot that purported to be drawn from those publications in order to discredit WikiLeaks and make it seem like WikiLeaks had just been publishing fakes, right? And this troll tweeted one of those screenshots at me. And for whatever reason, the reply to me got a lot of engagement and guys like David Frum and Malcolm Nance circulated it to assert that WikiLeaks was all phony, Right. And this was then, you know, reported on the Daily Beast. I somehow got blamed for it, even though it wasn't me. It was just a whole, you know, convoluted, uh, fiasco as usual. So, but anyway, that was my, my, the first time I had any kind of direct engagement with Malcolm Nance when I saw that he has so little propensity to do due diligence that he got tricked by a troll.
4: Yes, but he's willing to be a political operative. So he keeps getting his face on TV and whatnot. Um, Anyway, my my question was going to be, uh, I know you know who Eric Weinstein is. Are you familiar at all with his concepts where he abbreviates these terms, uh, the disc and the gin, the distributed idea suppression complex, uh, com, uh, complex and then the uh, guarded institutional narrative? Have you ever heard these things? Um, I can't recite it in any detail. I may have heard it at some point. Well, I just find them useful context uh concepts because when you're talking about these things it's what i'm thinking about is how these basically we're at the point now where uh the guarded institutional narrative is that there is a genocide in ukraine joe biden even said it it's coming out of the state department it's coming out of ukraine it's coming trump's out of said everywhere it too. trump's i mean jesus so literally everyone's saying this right and the uh distributed idea suppression complex is basically these little worm goblins that come out of the ground. Anytime anyone questions anything like what this guy you've been dealing with. And uh, so like the, the idea that you can't even question the, the concept that there's a genocide in Ukraine, when you can look at yourself and just very like, this has nothing to do
0: with just to to stop you real quick, Andrew, and I'll let you continue, but that's not even what I did in this instance. Oh no, I'm not saying I didn't didn't even go that far. No, no, I'm saying like, I think, just as a matter of rational inquiry, that ought to be available as a, as a question that some someone might pursue. But that's not even what I did here. I did something many, many steps below that. Meaning, I just said, "Look, maybe it's not prudent to just unthinkingly circulate whatever a Ukrainian government official posts on social media, given that they're in the midst of an active." information warfare campaign um and even that was deemed as so beyond the pale that it got me attacked in one of these official journals of mainstream respectability so i I didn't even go as far as as you're suggesting that one might go and then you know be you know face this retribution so think about what would happen if somebody actually did do what you're saying they might do
4: yeah all it takes is any amount of uh, critical thought because the whole thing isn't about truth. It's about this morality about the situation. So by definition, Ukraine can't do anything wrong and everything that is said about Russia has to be true. It has nothing to do with evidence at all. And <clears throat> anyone that's a rational observer is going to feel the uh, Feel the heat from this disc in different ways, whether it's these journals coming out, like attacking you, or if it's uh, Scott Ritter, who crossed the line on Twitter, is now banned for life, apparently, for no stated particular reason. As far as I'm aware, I haven't heard anyone that said why exactly he's been banned, but it's everybody knows it's because he crossed the line. He said Buka was staged and he bla- basically blamed uh, Zelensky. He said he needed to be arrested, tried for war crimes. And it's like, okay, well, that's crossing the line. And they're going well, to use mean, these policies is, I don't of know harm.
0: I don't know if that's what exactly
4: what he said. i have to see the... Uh, he may tweet. not have said it on Twitter, but okay. he said that on other in other places. And well, has, I mean, I,
0: unless he can back that up somehow, I mean, that's... I think that is going too far just in a normative sense. I'm not saying he should be thrown I'm off. I'm not saying
4: as a journalist, um, that's a yeah. good, good claim to yeah. make, uh, but I'm saying that that crossed the line for Twitter because they use these harm policies. And this is part of the disc as well is where basically you have like Ned and whoever are the government creeps that come in and tell them what is and isn't harm. And, uh you know basically you can call russians orcs and say that they eat ukrainian babies and you can just make all these wild claims and that's fine because that's that's good morally it doesn't matter what that truth value is but then uh you know scott ritter gets banned for for basically just questioning uh the narrative and so this this whole thing is just basically has nothing to do with truth value and so when you see these people it's you are established but imagining people that i mean i went to college i switched my major from journalism because i felt like there was no way uh this was a while ago that there's there's no way that anyone that cares about the truth can work in the mainstream media so how do you get your name known if you want to question something how do you start how do you start it's just ridiculous
0: well your first mistake was even pursuing a journalism major in the first
4: place yes i agree i switched (laughs)
0: That's a that's a total joke and but it's sort of a separate discussion for you know it's not even, not necessarily even has to not that it, it doesn't even necessarily have to do with one's inability to be truthful in the current industry. And it's just the the concept of a journalism major itself is ridiculous and I've actually written about that in the past. Um yeah, thank and you, I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't I didn't have j I didn't do a journalism major, because it's, it's useless. And most that, people who do, do who, most people who do pursue a journalism major end up going to PR. Um, so, anyway, um,
4: can I just make one last yeah. point? That
0: uh, yeah, I was just I was just gonna say before 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 I forget, ahead. you know, on this on this uh, kind of theory about how everything is just morally inflected, right? Or the it's it's not evidentiarily based in terms of this moral uproar. It's, it's based on whatever the moral calculus is, right? Maybe that's a, a bit of a. <laughs> Convoluted way of summarizing it, but something like that, right? And, uh, you know, in that vein, what I'm going to be doing next, and I'll give you everybody a little preview because it should be amusing, is uh, I'm going to reach out to advocacy organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center, the uh, Anti Defamation League, and other such groups to uh, see if they are troubled or disturbed by the fact that there are now rallies taking place in American cities where the participants openly chant Azov, Azov, Azov in support of that battalion, which as of 2018 had been banned by Congress to receive any arms on the ground that it was a neo-Nazi battalion. Um, So are any of the people who spent the period of 2016 to 2020 and are still doing it to some extent today when uh, they're trying to gin up a moral crisis every time that anybody could be even remotely tied to quote Nazis in, in the domestic US context are they at all concerned now that <laughs> an actual military regiment with, that proudly displays neo-Nazi symbolism or symb- uh, s- symbology are uh, being praised in the streets at rallies. So we're having pro neo-Nazi rallies, right, in the U.S. And I tend to doubt that there's going to be anything like the same sort of frantic condemnation that you would have seen during the Trump years, when you know some Republican made a crude statement and therefore was proclaimed to have been a Nazi. Um, you know, I- I'm not even doing this because I, ne- I-, I-, I actually... I think that a lot of that Nazi alarmism was overwrought um, and I do think that some of the claims about Ukraine being like somehow fundamentally ne- neo-Nazi are also probably overwrought. Although there is that, there, – there, it is true that this regiment is formally integrated within the command structure of the Ukraine military, right? So it's a bit different. Um, but the, the point is I want to see if I can uh, uh, locate what, what the operating principles are here. If the ADL or the Southern Providence Law Center are not willing to condemn this openly pro neo-Nazi rally that took place this weekend in New York City, well, why is that? Can they explain? Uh, I don't it's know that they can. Change. I don't know that they can, and I think that kind of you know underscores the the point that you're sketching out.
4: Exactly. And the last thing I will say is that uh, Rick Wilson said on Twitter that uh, Macron needs to mow down Putin and Greenwald, and that was fine. I got banned for uh, telling Mitch McConnell to choke on his donor money, which is a metaphorical insult, but uh, Rick Wilson. Did you really? His platform. (laughs) So that was a call to violence. My favorite band ever. Yeah, it was a call to violence. (laughs) It was advocating harm. Anyway, I want to hear from Surge and they everyone, used to be, but uh, yeah. they're going to come for you too eventually. I think uh, anyone that's too critical, and you are too critical, even though it's uh, you've established you're not questioning that there's a genocide or not, it doesn't matter. And I really think they're going to come for you too eventually. And
0: uh, yeah, maybe so. Um, you know, I, I tend to be—I I don't know—I'm not, I'm not trying to put Scott Ritter down, right? Um, and you know, based on your depiction of what he said, I don't know that I, I would necessarily endorse it at all um but i I think i'm probably a bit more careful with my words than somebody like him so i I think i should be okay but then again who knows
4: i think that's (laughs) responsible journalistically i don't think it's going to save your hide in the long run but anyway you you might be right very much
0: all right uh serge you are next hello
5: hi michael hi Uh, just calling in because um, I, I don't want to take a lot of your time. Just calling in because, um, you know, the topic of Butcher has become like this sore point for me uh, because I think it has become like this litmus tax test for, uh, you know, if you're supporting democracy or not. And basically, if you support the official narrative, uh, which is stating that what happened in Bucha is like this horrible genocide against Ukrainians. Uh, if you support it, then you're fine and, you know, nothing bad is going to come your way from the official media. But um, if you question it even one tiny a bit, um, you know, hellfire will come your way. And it's very problematic because there are a lot of reasons to question what happened there. And obviously the official narrative that Ukraine is putting out right now just doesn't make much sense to me as a Ukrainian. Um, You know, there are a lot of questions about uh, the actual timeline of um, what happened there. And, you know, there were no reports from the, local government in Bucha, about hundreds of corpses laying out everywhere. Uh, there were no reports in the initial videos that uh, the national police put out when they first entered Bucha. You know. uh, there were some bodies laying around uh, on streets, but uh, those were the bodies of people that probably died during... Uh, shellings that happened uh either due to russia's fault or ukraine's fault nobody knows for sure but you know the to this day i haven't seen anyone i haven't heard anyone addressing the fact that uh well there's at least one video of uh uh, a battalion led by and now Ukrainian Nazi, whose name is Sergei Botsman, uh, but who actually was a Russian Nazi. And he came to Ukraine because he, well, basically barely escaped prosecution in Russia for his crimes. He uh, betrayed one of his uh, friends, Maxim Maratzenkiewicz, who's known by his... uh, by his uh, nickname, Tisak. Well, and he was basically let off after that. And now he is here. He's leading a battalion of some uh, nationalists. I think so too. And the, uh, Sir, can,
0: can I can I interrupt you real quick? Just just for my yeah. own sorry information, yeah. I'm just curious are you Are you in Ukraine now, or do you live elsewhere? Are you from there originally? What's your sort of general Um, can you just maybe summarize what your stance is in terms of the different parties here that are at war? I mean, just kind of some overall kind of a synthesis of where, what your perspective is.
5: Sure. Of course. Uh, well, I'm from Eastern Ukraine and I was born here and, uh, you know, uh, As for who I'm supporting right now, um, I don't think that there's one side that I can actually fully support. Like, I'm definitely... uh, I was definitely against the 2014 coup and what happened there and basically everything that um, happened after the coup. And logically, you know, I can't support anything that our government has been doing for the past eight years and uh you know i have i've seen how our country was being sold out to the west you know with the, each passing year and uh you know are people mostly blind to everything what's <laughs> happening here when but... you say
0: sold out i mean do you mean like you know assets stripped well, uh, yeah, and, you know, and that kind of thing. Or do you mean like in a military sense? What do you mean exactly?
5: Well, I guess uh, mostly, yeah, uh, the fact that uh, we have let the Western forces basically, you know, um, cultivate this nationalistic regime, uh, which we've been dealing with for the past eight years. And there has been a lot of Legislature put in, uh, you know, the famous uh, scandal with uh, Biden and his son and everything that happened in Burisma and uh, how they just, you know, basically fired the general prosecutor who was going to shed some light on their corrupt schemes going on there and um, you know you would think that after the 2014 uh, revolution of dignity life would become better in Ukraine but uh, I don't think that um, any old person would agree with that because the pensions have been you know steadily going down and Well, inflation was a big problem and, uh, you know, the standard of life has been slowly going down with each year and people are mostly blind to it because they don't really follow the news and politics here but, you know, what you can definitely see is that The prices have been steadily going up and, uh, you know, the cost of living has become extremely high in the recent years. And, uh, well, yeah, you can talk a lot about this, but, you know, um, Zelensky who came here with the promise of stopping the war in the East, Uh, has basically sold out to this uh, Nazi idea that you can't go back and you you can't sign any peace deals with Russia and you have to basically get uh, the Eastern Territory and Crimea back by any means necessary. And, you know, Um... I just... It's interesting, you know,
0: just to bring it back to the Puka issue, which you raised sure. at the outset, you know, my thought on that was, I thought, a fairly uncontroversial one, which is that you know, I'm not in a position where I can confirm with any degree of certainty the providence of these bodies that I'm seeing in social media snippets, you know, how were the people killed, under what circumstances, and by whom, that's not in my capacity to determine from my vantage point, you know, thousands of miles away, and therefore it seemed reasonable what China and India were advocating when they addressed this issue via their diplomats at the UN, which is to call for an impartial independent investigation. For some reason, that's considered a fringe position in the, quote, West.
1: Well, that's... All that's
0: the only thing that's permissible yeah. are these rash hyper-moralistic judgments that just coincidentally happened to come in tandem with calls for greater and greater military escalation. You know, there was an article in the Financial Times that just came out today. I don't know if it's totally accurate. I wouldn't necessarily take it at face value. But what it claims, you know, uh, referencing some sources apparently has that took part in the, the uh, negotiations that happened between Ukraine and Russia in Istanbul – is that in in March Putin allegedly was open to the prospect of some sort of kind of negotiated resolution with Ukraine right and they might it might have even happened at the right at the end of March when Russia repositioned some of its troops uh, and uh, you know withdrew from certain areas around uh, Kiev and yeah. then you had this whole Bucha thing happen and that's what that was the turning point for Putin apparently because he was a Accused of genocide, um, because the uh, war fever in, uh, in, intensified by several orders of magnitude at that point, and apparently, according to the Financial Times, that's what negated the prospect of any potential uh, negotiated uh, resolution via yeah. those uh, talks.
5: Yeah. And now we can so. we can't go back to diplomacy. now after Butcher. yeah, because it, that's, that's, that's when you know Biden most, calls him
0: a war criminal, right? And how, how? What you're going to negotiate with a war criminal now? Because remember, the U.S. has to be party to these negotiations in some sense, and so Biden took that off the table.
5: Well, I'd say that the U.S. is not a party to negotiations. I'd say that the U.S. is basically calling all the shots. And right, you know, uh, just this evening, I think that Blinken and uh, the Ministry of Defense uh, from the U.S came to Kiev to discuss the the plan, I guess. And it's very disheartening, yes, to see that, um, you know, you can't question uh, anything that comes from the Ukrainian side. And uh, even though I am Ukrainian, I just, well, uh, I can agree with that. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. The thing that I said about uh, the video that came from Bucha, well, basically what was shown in it, it's a video that came from one of the battalions that uh, came to Bucha after the Russians pulled uh, their troops from there. And in this video, uh, one of the fighters of this battalion asks uh, the leader, which is recording this video, like uh, there are guys right there standing, like uh, it was his question. He, basically, he was asking for the permission to shoot at people that don't wear the appropriate armbands in Bucha. And uh, the leader responds, like, yeah, of course, shoot them down. And that's the video. And uh, I haven't heard anyone address this video and explain it like it's just like it, it has been memory hold and uh, I find it ridiculous and I think what we'll see is uh, yeah and um, the presidential advisor the official presidential advisor Aristovich now says that uh, there have been a lot of reports of you know things happening in the east which are very similar to what happened in Butcher. so and and this comes right after you know blinken and the minister of the us defense have been... yeah they were
0: actually you know what i right. didn't even realize that blinken and lloyd austin the defense secretary were were there today i have to now look into that That's a that's another actually big escalation um, so yeah thanks for informing me <laughs> um, all right Serge well uh, I appreciate your yeah, perspective you. um, it's definitely uh, valuable so uh, please come back to one of these uh, chats at some point and uh, we'll, we'll check in with you
5: sure thank you
0: um, and, uh, just I guess just to conclude the point the only thing I can really say from for my own stand, from my own standpoint on the BUCA question is that yeah but there should be an independent
5: investigation well it only makes sense um, right?
0: and but i like but that's that means i'm a war crime denier and a russian disinformation agent and everything else under the sun so yeah, what yeah, are you
5: going sympathizer yeah right? yeah all right thanks
0: serge bye thank you okay uh tim you're up
3: hey michael can you hear me yes i can yeah um search covered some of the things that i wanted to ask you about but so i'm gonna ask you something more general uh just and without trying to put you on the spot in any way but i'm just curious um whether you think in some ways uh your commitment to kind of factual reporting about things you can substantiate works against uh, against you Um, In the sense of, I'm just curious whether you feel like there's a, um, there's kind of a bigger perspective that needs to inform the kind of uh, reporting that you do. And uh, let me, let me try and um, substantiate that in some way. And this is kind of a very caricaturish kind of point of view, but I want. I, I'd love it if you could tell me what you think, because the, the dominant narrative in the West is basically this uniblock state called Ukraine is being attacked by a uh, you know much larger, much more powerful uh, state that's right next door. In which case, it's very easy to you know kind of endorse that and 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 get behind it for a very simple kind of perspective but if you actually um if you complicate it a little bit by saying that you know the third you know a third of the roughly a third of the population is actually you know for all intents and purposes russian by language and ethnicity and everything else and then you also further complicate it by saying that people who are you know, the, the people behind the conflict are thousands of miles away and have every reason to uh, to escalate it, then you suddenly have a situation where that narrative gets turned on its head and you're actually looking at a situation which is one I would kind of support honestly from a you know, squinting really hard look at this and saying, well actually what's happening here is you know, completely contrary to the idea that you know, Ukraine is liberating its own lands, so to speak, uh, that what you're actually doing is, um, what the Russians are actually doing here is uh, releasing someone from a torture chamber in the east of the country, right, that, that has been... Um, you know for eight years has been shelled relentlessly and you know Poroshenko literally promised them that they would have their kids in basements for however long it took while our kids go to school right um and and that you know so you go from you go from a very uh sanitized kind of notion uh cartoon to something where everything goes on its head and is there is there not some sense of an overall picture which allows you to kind of go, <laughs> this this narrative is completely false? Do you, do you um, I think I see what you're getting at.
0: My issue is that I think it's sort of incumbent upon me to operate from a basis of something like uh, epistemic humility or reticence anyway to make overly grandiose sweeping statements that I can't necessarily substantiate because uh, I'm in a position where everything pretty much that I say in in any public venue is hyper-scrutinized, so I have to make sure it's factually... Substantiated to the maximum possible extent, and if that means I'm not able to kind of weave together these more overarching narratives, then so be it. Um, you know, I'll I'll read what somebody has to say in terms of their proposed narrative, but I almost think it's it's better for me to contribute to kind of the deconstruction of phony mis- misimpressions of things by. Kind of narrow, more narrowly tailored analysis or reportage based on what I can personally kind of more confidently um, opine opine on, you know, or 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 analyze. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or if that's a um, coherent explanation of what I kind of view my role as here.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, I don't mean any disrespect for your efforts and, uh, you know, because reportage is totally necessary. But just as an example, you know, Patrick Lancaster is also, you know, uh, it. To anyone who doesn't know Patrick Lancaster, um, you know, he's an American uh, uh, ex-Navy, I believe, who's reporting from Eastern Europe. Uh, I've seen his videos. I mean,
0: he was just attacked also as well uh, on um, some of this military news website for basically just showing for Putin or something. And I've watched his videos, and he does seem like he probably has some connections with these Russian units. Yeah, 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 with these these Russian allied uh, units, and that gets him – access to these battlefield scenarios but a lot of it just seems like you know fairly standard reporters the idea is just it's just so shocking to see someone actually reporting from the quote russian side that they automatically assume that it has to be this you know malignant disinformation or whatever
3: yeah and i mean that's part of the cancer that's killing us right you know what i mean like uh tchaikovsky is somehow unacceptable as a human on this planet all of a sudden like how did that become acceptable after we've lived through you know years of blm like you know the 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 turnarounds here are so amazing to me but i guess the and i'm not again like i'm what i'm what i'm trying to get at is i'm just wondering whether like is there a in your mind, is there a form of engaged journalism that involves, like, zooming out a little bit further than maybe you feel comfortable with that that actually is kind of required by the situation, you know? Yeah, I mean, I
0: take the point I know what you're getting at. I'm just not sure I'm personally in a position to do so. But if somebody else feels like they're equipped to do so, then more power to them and I will read what they write or listen to what they say. Um, I just don't know that I'm... I mean, That's the, the, the best one to do that at the at the moment, but I'll I'll bear it in mind. Uh, anyway, I'm going to move on, Tim, because yeah, we're of course, kind yeah. of stretching on here time-wise. So um, let's That's go cool. to uh, Sheila. Hello.
6: Hey there. This is a very very interesting show and a very interesting topic. I have oh, so thank many you. For you. So many, but I, I just want to start by saying that they're all kind of framing around uh, proportionality of press around genocide, and other wars that we've been recently, recently engaged with, okay? Well, one of the things I can't get anyone who's an influencer to, to to really touch is like some sort of turd or kryptonite or something, they just won't talk about it. The, the weeks, uh, there were like three weeks of like really intensive, like everything was hogged and all of the channels to the exclusion of all of the news. Um, what <clears throat> was Ukraine and everything about Ukraine and Ukrainian everything. So that happened. Everybody knows that it happened. It was evident everywhere. You couldn't get it off the television screens. You couldn't get it out of the radio. It was everywhere. So we had been in Afghanistan for like, I don't know, uh, 18 years, 20 years. And the last like seven, 10 of those years, I mean, reporting on Afghanistan, casualties, American soldiers dying. There wasn't a single American soldier in Ukraine. They were parked next in Poland, 3,500 troops, you know, in that lead up time, news lead up time. And, you know, there wasn't that much. Well, more than 3,500. Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, but I, yeah, I take your point. <laughs>
6: you, you get my proportionality point? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, that's just, that was so striking to me. Like, 10 years of American dead bodies, other dead bodies, their they're, you know, people being blown up to bits, blah, 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 blah. And it was reduced to a ticker, man. And then nobody... Well, yeah, the same
0: way. well you would get a, the occasional American death from Syria, where we weren't... We're never supposed oh, to have, yeah. quote, boots on the ground. And there would be a two-sentence press release from the Pentagon and barely be covered in the wider media because it just wasn't seen as any kind of... Notable story, really. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're you're right in terms of what I, th- uh, you seem to be getting at. At
6: least you noticed. Like, I, I'm just trying to, to frame this up together with you. You noticed the same thing that I noticed. And then there's this other pin of like, let's use genocide. Okay, everything's a label. Everything's a labeling game these days, and nobody cares. Nobody in media. They have their primary responsibility. Of caring about the truth, uh, the truth of a matter. You know, where are the ethics organizations? I'm like, they're just. Where are they? They're nowhere. Media organizations who are in charge yeah. of like media ethics, nobody's speaking up. Yeah. And I'm
0: sorry they? on the issue of genocide. On the issue of genocide, I know everybody gets decried if they do quote whataboutism, but sometimes it's actually genuinely helpful to identify what our operating principles are. And it used to be pretty well understood what happened at Fallujah in 2004 in Iraq, right? 600 plus civilians killed in Fallujah. You had one of the soldiers who took part in those killings, later got elected to Congress, Duncan Hunter, Republican from California, and you know was then mired in different unrelated ethics scandals and uh, criminally convicted. Um, but he bragged in two thousand eighteen that he indiscriminately fired into crowds of civilians in 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 Fallujah right and then you yeah, know mass- gra- mass, mass graves like were like then
6: property.
0: yeah and the mass mass graves were purported to have been uncovered in in Fallujah and was there some criticism of what happened in Fallujah domestically in the u s sure, but this idea that people were just going to uh reflexively accept proclamations of genocide, right? With the U.S. being implicated, right, in this case. And by the way, more confirmed deaths in Fallujah, just Fallujah, than yes, in this uh, Buka incident by far, at least preliminarily. And so, yeah, I mean, sometimes you do have to engage in a little bit of whataboutism to to um, kind of strengthen the point you're making here just about this, the utter selectivity and the utter arbitrariness of how these things are presented, often for straightforwardly propagandist, propagandistic purposes, such as generating additional sub- public support for the intensification of this U.S. military intervention. Um, potentially, that could escalate even further to a direct intervention, which keeps getting floated. Um, and you know, in both the U.S. and the U.K. and elsewhere, where you know, I've reported on the U.K. element because yeah. I've been there for the past couple of weeks, so yeah, I mean there should there should be a whole lot more <laughs> discernment about all of this, but there really isn't. And uh, yeah, it's a good question. Where are the media watchdog agencies? There, are, there's this group called Fair F A I R Fair Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting that sometimes does good stuff countering bogus dominant narratives. But I haven't, uh, granted, I haven't been following it that closely, but. Nothing has popped into my feeds where they're showing the manipulation going on on uh, with this story. Maybe they've also been cowed. I'm not sure, uh, but yeah, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, there's been b- b- basically nothing uh, of of any note that um, really goes goes against the grain on any of this. Because w- what happens? Well, maybe you're going to get accused of partaking in a russian disinformation operation in foreign policy magazine like i was and for a lot of people <laughs> that actually can damage them i mean that's the thing that for, for me i've set up a situation where i'm not damaged by it right i have independent subscribers i have certain you know certain affiliations that are not going to be wrecked by that accusation being pumped out in the pages of foreign policy but most people in the industry even if they're like somewhat leftish or you know dissenting right or whatever and they have uh, you know they think that they're heterodox um, they still have to worry about the implications of what it would mean to have that accusation level at them in a prominent venue um, and so th- there's like a there's a subtle kind of intimidation factor uh, and often not so subtle that really militates against doing anything that could expose you to criticism along those lines and so I, I get it
6: I'm just- I'm really mystified, man, because it, the, the the intimidation factor comes with the journalistic play. Like, if you accept the, the gauntlet, I'm going to go out there and tell the truth. At some point, somebody's going to be like, you shouldn't be telling that truth. Don't tell that truth. I'll, I'll punish you some way. Yeah, you know, That's what happens.
0: Well, yeah, well, <laughs> but now if somebody uh, doesn't like what you report and criticizes you for it, perhaps using mean Who words. It's thing? violence. That's so violence. Much-
6: <laughs> who Who is the someone? That's why I'm I'm, I'm calling upon like, I, I, ta- I have asked Glenn, I have asked so many influencers. They just, there's just nothing, 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 nothing. They don't want to reach for those ethics help systems that are like nonprofits that orbit this CPJ, you know, they should be, they should be engaged in this. They should be galvanizing. They should be writing letters. They should be, you know, publishing opinions and editorials. They should be fighting on this, but they're not. Why?
0: Well, I mean, the CPJ—I mean, I find them to be kind of a joke. I mean, maybe you have some other familiarity with them and have more confidence in their institutional integrity or something. But they just seem—it just seems like a professional clique, um, one of these basic, you know, more or less social clubs that polices the boundaries of who's considered an acceptable journalist and who isn't. And I'm just not really interested in any of that. Careerist
6: kind of. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're supposed to be doing,
0: it. They're supposed to be doing yeah. this. All right. Well, uh, Sheila. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I basically agree with you. But uh, I'm going to go now to the next okay. caller. Hello again, uh, Greg. Greg,
7: you are up. If you're there. Hello, Michael. Sorry to bother you Hi. again.
0: Well, I mean, I did host a show that invites people to call in. So if that con- if that constituted you bothering me, then I've done something wrong.
7: Yeah, I'd like to see the uh, other journalists you've been talking about uh, do that. It'd be interesting. I would definitely call in and say something to them. Well, that's
0: the thing. I mean, keep, I I I open myself up to as much scrutiny as these people want to give to me, and um, so it's not like, and yet you know, the, at the first inkling of this guy, Justin Ling, being subjected <laughs> to any degree of scrutiny, he seems to like withdraw and, you know, kind of just uh, retreats well, I, from the public, the public sphere when, yeah. when you know, just a, just like two weeks ago, he was more than willing to fling these accusations out there. So uh, well, what maybe you say should about invite him on Draw the call your own on. conclusions. <laughs> well, he won't even, Why he won't you even invite reply him him to on? my messages. He won't even reply to my messages. <laughs>
7: So, That's, but, but I, yeah, I, had I had something. Let's something similar. Yeah, I agree. I had something similar happen to me. I was. I try to stay off social media. I still have my Facebook because I have some pictures on there that and some family members on there that I like to communicate with. But I went on there to look up some car parts because I'm part of a car part group. Anyways, I saw somebody who I went to uh, this college class with, and he's a really smart guy, but he's a partisan hack for the Democrats, and is completely bought into you know everything comes back to being anti-trump as far as i can tell from my opinion and he's just been completely um brainwashed and he made a post about uh i can't remember the lady who was basically unmasked who was doing the libs of tiktok thing or whatever and he left some comment on facebook that was like oh if you disagree with her unmasking and blah 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 she was you know doxing all these people and creating you know unsafe conditions for people in the uh lgbtq uh ai plus community (laughs) and i left a comment saying well you know this is you know the stuff that taylor lorenz ended up doing to her is kind of the same the, the weaponization of the same kind of tactics, you could say, but you approve of it because it's on your side, and you approve the target. And he dis- disagreed with me and said, oh, she's not being doxxed. Uh, they only revealed her name, and to dox people, you have to reveal more than her name, and you have to reveal like the name, where they live, um, other, other parts of their life. And I said, well I typed something like I don't I don't agree like that doesn't you can reveal a name in this day and age and get all that information and I actually actually happened to listen because my dad is conservative he sent me a Tucker Carlson thing today and it was about that particular incident and um, they talked about that German company or that German funded I can't remember the name of the company, but they actually were the ones who helped provide the information to the Washington post who Taylor Lorenz works for. So I thought that was interesting. And he ended up uh, blocking me when I said, I think you're being disingenuous because he left like a definition for doxing and I left a definition and I, and he was like, it has to be all of these things and that like, not just the name being revealed, but it also has to be that anyways. People don't want to talk anymore. And that is a dangerous situation, I think. And my question is, wh- what, what does somebody like like me do? Like, I took a journalism class and I was completely disenfranchised with it in 2016. My teacher was completely biased and didn't buy into any of the journalistic ethics that, you know, we're purportedly supposed to believe in. Um, are we supposed to just go hide in the forest and... Prep for ourselves because I don't feel like anything we do at this point really matters. Like, I, I can I can I can say all this information and learn all this stuff, but nobody's going to see it like I do because they haven't <laughs> experienced the same things that I have. And they don't. I mean, I just I don't know. Well, like,
0: well, like, just like the one of the previous callers, your first mistake was taking an official. Journalism oh, I quit class the class. And it's so inane. Yeah. Journalists love to just constantly talk about journalism as such and convene panels about it and do all this self-referential performative bs that really has the ultimate function of kind of enshrining their own this professional click um like so that's why i i kind of this viscerally <laughs> negative reaction to the CPJ, which is the Committee of Professional Journalists, or whatever, because I, I just don't buy into the premise of so many of these organizations that kind of feel like they can govern who is an acceptable journalist that meets all these highfalutin standards and who isn't, because it's just... Well, ultimately, it's kind of... Uh, it's institutionally enforced conformism, and that's the opposite tendency that you should want to cultivate in aspiring... Journalism. I mean, one reason why the current media climate is so bad is because people have been brought into the industry through those conformity conformity inducing channels. Um, so, yeah. I mean, what can you do? I don't know. I mean, just keep on trucking. I guess uh, subscribe to my substack. That's what you can do. All right. Thanks, Gregor.
7: Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael.
0: All right. Uh, last caller, uh, Lance. Hello. You are up.
8: Guy, uh, you do all the time. Uh, you know, great to talk to you. Hey, mm-hmm. you know, the war thing—it it is it, it, a little baffling. In that, when you look to religion, for instance, you know, half the colonies were founded on uh, having sanctuary for their own religion, not freedom of religion. Maryland was Catholic, Massachusetts was Puritan, so that makes sense that we have this like this strong kind of like religious weirdness, even though it's just and kind of stupid. But the war thing. And Lance, kind of I'm having regulation. a little
0: bit of a hard time hearing yes. you. You're kind of muffled. I don't know if you can adjust that uh, somehow. Okay, how's that? Is that better? Yeah, it's better.
8: Oh, yeah. So anyway, it's, it's not surprising that we have uh, a strong kind of, you know even if it's weird, about religion because we've been a religious faith, you know, and we founded on a lot of that in terms of the colonies, etc. But the war thing, we haven't always been that warmongery. And so after say Vietnam and, of course, Afghanistan and Iraq, what the heck, why are we so, you know, willing to just back Ukraine like it's World War II and it really is Hitler? And, you know, if I could just back up to a 10,000, you know, feet view, I think you just have to kind of hand it to the military industrial complex. I've been reading recently, I'm sure you have read about how it isn't just war movie, but the Pentagon getting into Helping to write like movies that aren't even about military stuff. They're not just you know uh, over the shoulder of uh, you know a Private Ryan and things like that. That they're really infiltrated in a very quiet way in Hollywood in terms of the messaging. So in other words, things unrelated. Well, there was to a military. whole there was a
0: whole controversy a couple of years ago where they were p- uh, paying for sports teams to basically. Provide military-themed entertainment at you know football games or whatever. Uh, right. like I think the the Atlanta Falcons was a big team that got caught doing this, and yeah, I, I yeah. really it was the Pentagon that got caught, and they they claimed to have reformed the practice because believe it or not, John McCain objected to it for just kind of technical reasons. Um,
5: yeah, but yeah. yeah, I
0: mean the the point is that they the, yeah, I mean they they uh, they have their tentacles in a lot. Let's see.
8: Yeah, and, and, and my 10,000 foot view is so we had World War One a decade later, 1919-1929. We had the Depression. Then right from there, we're on the heels of that. We're in World War Two. After World War Two, people were like, okay, enough. Let's you know, okay, sure, normal over overcompensation to just this normal life and everything in the 50s and all that. Then all of a sudden, three or four year four years later, Korea. They call it the Forgotten War. Okay, but I think that said. And then you had Eisenhower, you know, who was not always an angel, of course, in terms of a lot of hanky-panky and you know, Latin America and every place else. But he did do his amazing speech about the military-industrial complex. And there's Korea. And it was it, it ended like it started. It wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't a, like a, quote-unquote, good war like World War II. And I my I have a theory about this, that it was the people that fought in Korea, more so, even though they weren't that much old, younger than the World War II, that, that created a real radicalism. The beat generation came out of that whole kind of like on the heels of that. And the Hells Angels were Korean vets, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And sure enough, when it came to Vietnam, it might have been a 50-50 proposition about for and against. It wasn't like 80-20 against the war, but it was a noisy 50%. And the war eventually did end, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that just, if I could just go on for a second, there's a fascinating article in a really great book called Annals of the Insurgent Imagination, the Free Spirit Annals of the Insurgent Imagination, put together by Lord Ferlinghetti from uh, uh, City Lights Books. A bunch of eccentric people you never heard of, articles one by Mary McCarthy, who is heard of, but eccentric. And there's a great article in there about how, for instance, the uh, Nancy Drew Mysteries, it was about kids showing up, old people, showing up their... Foginess, or their corruption, or their blinderism, or their prejudice, and then once it got bought, like like anything happens, you want to retire or you go on to other things. You're an author. No no uh, no harm done there. You sell it to a corporation, the Harpers or whoever. Once it became corporate all the, the shift changed and it was about pleasing the parents. And it wasn't about being like shunned because you're a kid, but you actually wind up being smarter. It's like, no, we should shun you. And oh, you, you did something good and you please the parents instead of showing them up. One more point, cops in sitcoms or in movies, soldiers, they weren't revered, you know, as like like parking places for cops now. If you're, if, you're a, if you're a first responder or a police officer, or if you're a veteran in a lot of places out where I live in Trump country, kind of. It's like, why, why should they get free spots? It was about making jokes about it. You didn't have to put down police in general, or policing. But it was like the, uh, the uh, you know, uh, Car 54, where are you? Anyway, slowly but surely, and it isn't, didn't happen overnight. It's been happening since the early mid-60s. Some of the 50s TV was more radical than the 50s. And slowly but surely, we just accept this corporatization. One last, last point. Rich people were always portrayed like the Monopoly guy in sitcoms. Of course, hey, you're the rich guy on the hill, and you talk like you have a stick up your butt. And you know Warren Beatty played this on Dobie Gillis, where the middle-class people were always laughing at the the rich idiots. We did not revere John D. Rockefeller. That was the Monopoly guy. That was all rich people. Now we got Warren Buffett, the cuddly old guy who really did havens when he lied about it and said, oh, I just do regular, you know, yeah, I don't do any special loopholes. Yes, he did. He got caught on that. But like the the cuddly billionaire, the really nerdy guy, you know, good old Bill Gates and, uh, you know, Elon Musk. Oh, he's just this eccentric guy. He's going to save free speech on Twitter. And it's ridiculous. These people are all ruthless, cunning, evil, you know, violent, you know, willing to do just about anything with or without the law, within or without the law to get there. But we revere billionaires now. And it's crazy. I'll stop there and get your thought.
0: (laughs) Well, that's – an elaborate theory I have to maybe ponder it um, you know I guess I tend to go toward the more simple explanation, which is that you know if you're asking why is it that everybody feels just innately uh, impelled to advance the cause of Ukraine, well you have a vast architecture in the U.S. centered around this quote-unquote defense industrial sector that, yes, is profit-seeking and is always on the lookout for new markets to enter. And, uh, yeah, it's a heavily lucrative opportunity now that's available to them to be fueling what appears to now be an indefinite, at the very least, proxy war, maybe an all-out war. Um, so does that mean that, in every instance you can draw a causal connection between the profit seeking interests of this industry and what happens on a policy making level? Not quite, but that's the backdrop always right That's the incentive structure, and with an incentive structure like that. You know if you I can also if you if you, if you if you can different. also throw if you can also throw in some ideological zeal and some yeah, yeah. you know conformity of thought that you know is intensified by social media and a bunch of other ingredients then yeah I mean that's the a recipe for what we're seeing uh now but often I find the 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 the, the raw profit seeking motive is dismissed by people who really haven't looked adequately into like what the u s defense industrial sector is and how Integral it is into in the economy, and um, how much influence the people who run it really wield. Uh, so that that's what I would go back to. As as interesting as I find your uh, <laughs> decades long kind of cultural uh, synopsis, uh, but I would know, have to think about that more to really comment intelligently.
8: Well, I'll throw one in that's in between the fifties and now. I was literally, I think I was tripping, but I was actually having a beer and it was in a place where it wasn't crowded yet, was like getting to be happy hour in a it in a played this beer and wine joint on Syracuse University campus. And I'm watching because it was quiet. There was nobody in there hardly. And it was all these video games and pinball games that were like shooting, you know, making sounds of like shots. And it was like, come and fight the enemy. And it was all these military games. And I was like, wow, when I came up 10 years earlier, you know, the pinball arcade, pinball wizard in the mall where I worked, it was about, like, car games, and it was about being in casinos, it was about being at car races, it was about being in bars, and it was kind of the bowling alleys, which were, you know, had pool rooms where people gambled, and it was like these kind of, like, naughtyish, you know, kind of things, you know, fun, playboys. But then it was all military stuff. So it hasn't happened to that day. And I, this is the, 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 the upshot of that is, Ronald Reagan, just was the news, you know, here's the news after, you know, in between the music. Ronald Reagan said, and I was just at the, uh, you know, Strategic Air Command uh, earlier today, and I'll tell you, those simulators that they use are just like the video games that kids play. They're getting a lot of good training from video. He said that Reagan said this in the '80s. So it's, it, it, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there's a lot of just real stuff about how they've just done it with beyond just militaristic. They, in other words, it's beyond. I'm It's
1: beyond yeah. Hey, uh, you know, hey, Lance,
8: can't you're uh, you can't, can't be against the war. We're not going to allow any TV. Hey, you're, uh, hey, Lance. Sorry,
0: sorry. sorry, sorry. Hey, Lance, yeah. I'm I'm sorry. But I your think your connection's not great, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I think people got the uh, thrust of your point, and that we we can talk about it more at some later date. Um, all right, everybody, thanks for uh, thanks for joining. Um, uh, maybe going to analyze some French election returns and whatnot and we'll uh reconvene in a couple days all right uh take care bye